Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Professor Kristen Godsey on her book Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. When the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, Kristen Godsey was travelling in Europe. She spent the summer of 1990 witnessing firsthand the hope and euphoria that followed the sudden and unexpected collapse of state socialism in the former Eastern Bloc. The political and economic chaos that followed the arrival of capitalism inspired Godsey to pursue an academic career, studying how ordinary people's lives, and women's in particular, were changed by this upheaval. For the last two decades, she has visited the region regularly and lived for over three years in Bulgaria and the eastern parts of reunified Germany. Now a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania, she has won many awards for her work, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, and has written six books on gender, socialism and post-socialism. And her latest book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, we're going to talk about today. Kristen, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to talk, first of all, how this book came about. Now, it began as a as an op-ed in the New York Times, didn't it? Exactly, exactly. So it was a very strange and serendipitous set of circumstances that led to the book. Uh, but the short you know, answer is that there was a series of essays appearing in the New York Times for the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution throughout the year of 2017. And a previous book uh, to this one called Red Hangover included an essay about me giving a lecture in Germany about a film, a documentary film called Do Communists Have Better Sex in English? And that lecture, that sort of essay about what it was like to give that lecture to a group of West Germans, essentially, ended up being transformed into that op-ed that went crazy (laughs) viral all over the world. I mean, really rather unexpectedly. And so I never realized that people cared so much about this topic. Um, It's something that I've been teaching about regularly since 2002 or three. So it was, you know, the sort of crux of my academic research, but not something that I thought the general public really cared about. And then in the aftermath of the popularity of the New York Times op-ed and the outrage and vitriol that it inspired, I was contacted by a publisher who said, hey, would you like to develop this 
op-ed into a book. And I agreed only because one of the biggest criticisms of the op-ed was that in the 1,200 words that I was given, I did not fully substantiate every single claim that I made. And so I negotiated with the publisher that I would be able to have full endnotes so that I could provide citations for every single claim that I make in the book. And when they agreed to that, I agreed that I would go ahead and write it. Well, I wanted to talk about some of that initial reaction, first of all. And obviously, I mean, it's no surprise to say that, you know, in the United <laughs> States compared to Europe, socialism is obviously, I mean, for want of a better word, more of a red light. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I think a, a recent, um, there was a, a PBS special on the book and the uh, journalist Paul Solman called socialism the political equivalent of devil worship in the United States. And I think he actually kind of nailed it. People get hysterical when they hear the word socialism, although that has changed in the last couple of years. But certainly prior to Bernie Sanders' presidential primary campaign against Hillary Clinton, socialism was just a term that very few people used in public. And certainly it was something that would raise a lot of eyebrows if you were you know, hoping to discuss it openly or talking about what we could learn from socialist ideas. So it was really shocking to me how angry people were. And people were, I mean, just fuming at the idea. And it wasn't just my Red Century column. There were several other Red Century columns. There was one about women in China. There was one about Lenin's environmentalism. There were a couple of columns that just really infuriated people in the United States. But on the other hand, I think that it really also opened up a really interesting conversation. And you also got correspondence from people that had grown up in the Eastern Bloc. Yes. And that was actually one of the, you know, I was very hesitant to write for a big public, you know, outlet like the New York Times, because of course, as an academic, it's hard to do all the kind of hedging and substantiating and hemming and hawing that we do when we write for our colleagues. So you have to have a much clearer kind of voice in writing for a popular audience. But one of the things that was really worthwhile were the number of people from all across the former social world, who personally took the time to email me to say, hey, thank you for writing what you wrote. Um, this really resonated with my experience. Or let me tell you a funny story about when I grew up. Or let me tell you about my mother. Or let me tell you about my grandmother. And I got so many really touching personal stories. Now, that isn't to say that I didn't get a bunch of, of really angry people from the Eastern Bloc, especially people who had left and come and settled in either Western Europe or the United States, you know, prior to the end of the Cold War. Some of them were extremely angry <laughs> about the, the column. But in general, at least from the people in Eastern Europe, the sense that I got was that there was a real desire to actually have a conversation about some of the things that they felt like they'd lost with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, obviously, nobody wanted, nobody wants state socialism in Eastern Europe back. That's just a generally, you know, most people are pretty happy with the fact that they're now members of the EU or they have a more open economy, they can travel, there aren't shortages, there aren't famines or gulags or secret police or all of the negative things that we know about the state socialist regimes in Eastern Europe in the 20th century. But there were some things that people really do miss. And we see this in the data about nostalgia across the region. 
And so people really were grateful, I think, in some ways that kind of inadvertently, I opened up a conversation about, well, what were some of the positive things that state socialism actually was able to accomplish despite all of the many admitted negatives? Um, I just want to reiterate that as well, because, you know, people will bring it up and, you know, at the very least, gulags and political famines and secret police are going to put a damper on your sex life. Oh, yes, for sure. And, you know, and and I make it very, very clear in the book, you know, several times that I am not in any way calling for a return of 20th century state socialism. And on balance, those regimes had way more internal contradictions and negatives than they had positives. That is not up for debate as far as I'm concerned. But what I think is really interesting, especially in the American context, but I noticed this as well when I lived in Germany, and I would even say this is true in many East European countries. There's a sort of unwillingness to talk about the things that actually worked in some ways. And some of those policies were things that were also implemented in either Scandinavia or in Western Europe. And they were done without the gulags and without the famines and the um, purges and the sort of negatives that we associate with state socialism. And the reason that that's really important is because all of these policies, whether they came from Eastern Europe or they came from or they, you know, implemented in in Scandinavia, they all have a sort of common source in 19th century socialist theory that predates the Bolshevik revolution. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that there are really important early utopian socialist thinkers like Robert Owen or Fourier or Saint-Simon in France. And then, you know, subsequent sort of more what we think of as sort of scientific or just socialist thinkers, people like Bebel, August Bebel in Germany or Lily Braun, who were really grappling with how to mitigate the worst effects of the free market on especially women, but more broadly on the commodification of of human relationships. Now, before we go on to talk about socialism in depth, let's talk about some of the issues that bedevil romantic relationships living under capitalism. Sure. Yeah. And there are a lot of them. So I think, you know, if we go back to the Communist Manifesto, there's this really interesting place where Marx and Engels basically say that capitalism has reduced human relationships to naked self-interest. Right. And I think that very early on, socialists understood that people when they look at each other as commodities, when they see each other in a transactional way, it undermines the quality of our relationships. So even just last night, I was reading a book about women in Romania, and Romania was by far the worst place to be a woman in the 20th century because of the very, very, very um, brutal pronatalist policies that Ceausescu implemented after 1966. But even in Romania, people you know, that they interviewed for this book, talk about how human relationships between friends, between neighbors, between bosses and employees, between colleagues and between men and women were so much more humane and satisfying under socialism than they've become post-1989. Because capitalism or free markets basically commodifies not only our time, which is, you know, that goes all the way back to um, the middle of the 19th century theories about how our time gets commodified. But I argue in the book, and, and many other people have pointed out, that increasingly in the 21st century, our emotions, our affections, and our attentions are being commodified. So that no longer is our time as valuable 
for profit generation because, of course, there are robots and algorithms that can do a lot of that we we would otherwise have done in the past. Now we're being that the expropriation that's happening from us is from our um, our emotional and affections and our attentions. So affective labor, I call it in the book, and I think that that's sort of at the root. This is something that socialist theorists have talked about all the way going back to the middle of the 19th century, and I think that it's something that's very salient today, especially for millennials, young people who really feel like their lives are being commodified. Every single aspect of their lives are being commodified. But this isn't something that's just theorized by, you know, socialist theorists. Tell us what no. sexual yeah. economic theory is. Yeah, so sexual economics theory is a paper that came out in 2004 by a couple of social psychologists who are basically using economic theory to understand heterosexual courtship. And they make this really interesting claim. Now, that they build in a couple of assumptions that are pretty problematic. And the first assumption is that men and women have differential sex drives. And the second is that all sex or sex with all women is essentially kind of created equal. And so, but they basically posit that sex is a commodity that women sell and that men buy, and that it has a price that is determined by fluctuations in a market by supply and demand. And so in this model, women have a vested interest in keeping the price of sex high in societies where women have very few opportunities for economic independence. So it's very clear that um, they look around the world and they say, okay, when women have very little education and very little opportunities for professional development and very little you know, a possibility for supporting themselves and their own needs, marriage is usually the price for sex because they need a man in a heterosexual relationship to support them, to financially support them in order to survive in society. When you flip that around in societies where women have a lot of economic independence, then women, and there have been studies that show this, basically the price of sex is much lower because women basically have sex because they want to have sex, not because they need to pay their rent or they need medical care or they need food, right? If they have their own ability to meet their basic needs, the price of sex basically drops. And so the weird thing about sexual economics theory, as it's been applied by sort of conservative people in the United States is that they're using this theory as a way of essentially saying that women, the women's economic independence are responsible for the failures of men. Because if the price of sex is too low, men don't have any interest or don't have any incentive to do anything to make any money to earn access to women's sexuality. And so the sort of crisis of masculinity that we see is all because of women's economic independence. And so the obvious answer, as far as they're concerned, is that there should be no birth control, there should be no um, reproductive rights for women, and we should limit women's ability to be economically independent, because then women will want to have the price of, of sex be very high, in this case marriage, so that they will have men to economically uh, support them. And then men will have an incentive to go out and get a job, because the only way they're going to get sex is if they have enough money to economically support a woman, a wife, and therefore all of society will be fixed. So it's a very kind of cynical version of, of, of thinking about heterosexual courtship in the 20th century. But I think it's really resonated with a lot of people because people do think increasingly, I think part of this has to do with the prevalence of things like Tinder and Bumble and these apps that make you know sex even feel more transactional, that people do think of sexuality as, as more increasingly transactional. And so it makes sense 
that people are kind of glomming onto this idea of sexual economics theory. But what I find so fascinating, Neil, about sexual economics theory is that the authors of that paper in 2004 had absolutely no idea, I think, that they were essentially giving credence to the model that socialists in the 19th century you know, the critique, the socialist critique of capitalist sexuality basically pointed out that in a capitalist economy, women are commodities to be bought and sold. And so ironically, sexual economics theory basically posits a particular worldview of how heterosexual courtship works in a capitalist economy, which then raises the question, which is an interesting question from a theoretical perspective, what would our relationships be like when we reduce the influence of market mechanisms on our personal lives. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Christine Godsey, and we're talking about her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And Christine, all the way through the book, there's talk of and indeed photographs of some uh, prominent European socialist theorists and activists, a couple of which we'll talk about as we go. But I think perhaps slightly ironically for me possibly the hero of the book is a man um someone you've already (laughs) mentioned Um, i'd like you to tell us a bit more about who august babel was yeah i know and that's the thing is that you know babel is such an important person in this whole story and 
in terms of the influence that he had on Alexandra Kollontai, who was the first Soviet commissar of social welfare, who really implements a lot of the policies after 1917 in the Soviet Union, he's her direct inspiration. It's very clear that her whole worldview was transformed when she read this book, Woman in Socialism. So Babel was a, a social democrat, and um, he was a proponent of the idea that sexuality was completely natural and that it should exist outside of the political and economic sphere, that basically, essentially, people should have private lives. You know, Bebel is also credited by many LGBTQ activists as being the first politician who actually spoke out publicly in Parliament against the criminalization of homosexuality in 1898. So he's an incredibly progressive figure. And um, he wrote this book, Woman in Socialism, where he essentially sort of lays out this vision of what women's lives would be like once the means of production were sort of socially owned. And he really details, it starts out with women in the past, women in the present, and then women in the future. And when you read his women in the future chapters, they're really fascinating because he's essentially saying, you know, there will be a time, sometime when women choose their partners out of mutual affection and not out of any economic considerations. There will be a time when women get to choose their careers on the basis of their ability, when women will be educated. I mean, he's, it's almost like science fiction when he's writing this in 1898. But I think that if you, know, if you actually go back and you read some of these chapters of Woman in Socialism, they're incredibly progressive. And unfortunately, because he comes from a socialist tradition, very few Western feminists, liberal feminists, really think of him as kind of a, a forefather, uh, as, a, as a progenitor of, of feminism. But he's such a key He's such a key figure, um, as are the utopian socialists, right? The French um, Frenchman Charles Fourier is, is generally credited with inventing the term feminism. So there are these really important people back in, you know, pre really early part of the 19th century who were talking about these ideas, not to mention also Robert Owen in the UK. So I think that Bebel, though, is really the inspiration. And when we look at 20th century uh, socialism in Scandinavia, and we look at uh, 20th century forms of socialism in Western Europe, and certainly 20th century state socialism in Eastern Europe, almost every single policy that was implemented has its root you can find a direct trace back to Bebel, which I think is really fascinating. So yeah, in some ways, it was a man who was the biggest champion of, of women's rights in Europe. I want to take a, a number of countries from the former Eastern Bloc and, and just have a, a brief look at how some of those ideas panned out then for women, what women's lives were like under socialism. First of all, in the Soviet Union, um, that's obviously quite a big topic, but just sort, yeah. of, just sort of briefly. And you've already mentioned, I wanted to just briefly make mention of Alexandra Kollontai, who you've, you just mentioned as being particularly influenced by Babel as well. So you could tell us something about her as well. Yeah, so the Soviet Union is, is important because obviously it was the first real state built on these socialist principles. Um, and Kollontai was a Bolshevik. She was earlier a Menshevik, but she becomes a Bolshevik because of her opposition to World War One. And Lenin makes her the commissar 
Commissar of Social Welfare, where she really tries to implement a very radical set of policies. So one of the first things she does is she liberalizes divorce and she takes away marriage from the church and makes it essentially a civil affair. And then in 1918, there's an incredibly progressive family code that is passed in the Soviet Union. Now, unfortunately, the Soviet Union in 1918 is, you know, just coming out of World War One. It then fights a civil war and then it gets slammed with a horrific famine in 21-22. And so Kolontai's policies, they just don't have the economic heft, the, the economic backing that they need in order to really work because she's talking about socializing um, child care. She's talking about socializing, you know, creating canteens and creches and mending cooperatives. She's talking about public laundries. She's really talking about socializing domestic work, which Lenin agreed with to free women from the kind of work that they had to do, domestic work that they had to do in the home so they could go out and become independent uh, women and work, you know, take part in the building of the socialist society. Unfortunately, there's a second family code in 1926, which is fairly still progressive. But by 1936, you know, it's pretty clear that the peasant population in Russia is completely against many of these reforms. Uh, the Bolsheviks are not willing to use the money that they need in order to build all of these children's homes. It's much easier to get women to go back into the home and do the work for free while on top of their formal employment, which results in this terrible thing called the double burden. And then you also have a crisis of incredible proportions in terms of orphans, women um, being abandoned by men uh, because there was a very liberalization in marriage laws. There was a lot of free love and there were all these orphans. And then so the Soviet Union is the first country in the world to liberalize abortion in 1920. But then that precipitates a drastic decline in the birth rate. So basically, by 1936, Stalin reverses everything. And you go back to a very, very traditional patriarchal society from 1936 until 1955, when the laws start to change. And then between 1955 and 1991, when the Soviet Union collapses, there's a gradual loosening of social mores along the lines of what Colin Tai had envisioned. But generally speaking, the Soviet Union was much more conservative than countries like Eastern Germany or Czechoslovakia or even Catholic Poland, I would argue. So it's a really mixed story in the Soviet Union, largely because Stalin decides to go back to sort of very traditional gender roles between 1936 and 1955. Well, I wanted to talk about Czechoslovakia next, and, and particularly you talk about um, the prevalence of academic sexology in Czechoslovakia. Yes, yes. And so, yeah, and of course that predates um, the communist era. And so I think it's really important to realize that both in the case of Eastern Germany and in the case of Czechoslovakia, you do have very progressive ideas about the, the scientific study of sex, of sexology, that it actually predate the communist era. But what's really interesting, and, and in the case of Czechoslovakia, a wonderful book has just come out called Sexual Liberation Socialist Style, which is all about sexology in, in Czechoslovakia. And it really shows Czechoslovakia sexologist between 45 and 68 imagined a world they did research and they proposed a model whereby good sex and by this it, I actually mean just good sex between men and women would only happen in relationships that were based on equality and so women's economic independence was seen as a crucial factor in 
improving the sex lives of the population. Because, of course, these were sexologists. They were concerned with things like sexual dysfunction. And I think that the Czechoslovaks were really ahead of the game in many ways. And they, there's a lot of, you know, there's they, in, in, in the 50s, they have a whole conference that on the female orgasm and trying to understand it. They also understand quite early that, uh, you know, homosexuality is not a disease. It's just a, it's just a sexuality. It's just a proclivity. And they try to do very hard to, you know, normalize that even though they have these uh, pronatalist inclinations. Of course, all of this changes after 68 and the Soviet invasion. So in the later period, there's a return to kind of more traditional gender roles. But this early period in Czechoslovakia is really amazing. So that if you read Czechoslovak women's magazines or marriage manuals during this period of time, you can see that it's not just the political establishment, but it's also the medical establishment. They're essentially telling men, hey, you should help out around the home. You should help with childcare. This will actually make the relationship relationship between you, you and your wife more beautiful, more loving. It will help your wife. It, it's going to build this beautiful society. We're going to do things differently than they do them in the capitalist West, where women are sort of stuck in the kitchen or the church or with the children. Now, I wanted to talk about Romania as a counterpoint to all of this, and you've already covered that, but I don't want us to move on without bringing up yeah. the Anna Pauka, is it? Anna Pauker, that's right, yeah. Um, so Romania is, again, um, until 1966, has a pretty progressive, um, there's, a, there's a progressive moment in Romania, and Anna Pauker becomes the world's first woman foreign minister, um, which leads Time magazine in 1949 to call her the most powerful woman alive. Um, they, everybody is really kind of freaked out by the idea that there's this woman with all this power. But unfortunately, in 1966, after birth rates in Romania start to decline, as they did everywhere, where after Stalin died, there was this liberalization of divorce in 55, 56 in many of these East European countries. And what they found was that when women are working full time and they get pregnant, they will generally prefer to terminate their pregnancies because of the challenges of work-family balance. And so some countries responded obviously East Germany and Czechoslovakia, but also Hungary and Bulgaria and Poland, Yugoslavia as well, by increasing the number of kindergartens and creches available and by extending job-protected paid maternity leaves. But Romania and places like Albania did the opposite. They basically outlawed abortion. And in Romania, they outlawed birth control. They essentially forced women to have children that they didn't want. And I say it in the book, and I want to say it on the air, I think that Romania was probably the worst country to be a woman in the Eastern Bloc. Maybe Albania is a close second, and then the Soviet Union under Stalin. But I think that Romania, without a doubt, there was very little sex education. There was very little, um, it's, it remained very patriarchal. There was very little challenge to kind of patriarchal authority in the home. And there was this incredibly oppressive state apparatus that essentially forced women to have children so that by the 80s, you're actually having mandatory gynecological checks, you know, uh, involuntary so that women have to show that they're not pregnant. And if they are pregnant, it has to be recorded so that they don't terminate the pregnancy. And you have high death rate of women who are trying to do illegal abortions. It's a really, really negative 
negative example. And I think that I want to make it clear that when I talk about the Eastern Bloc, it's not easy to homogenize because there are really important regional differences. Just one more country then in East Germany, and particularly in reference to how things changed before and after the Berlin Wall came down and communism started to fall, the regime started to fall. There are a number of interviews that you, you make in, in the book with um, both women and men about how their you know romantic relationships were before and after communism and and there's a particularly hilarious passage where men basically say that you know having a good career like being a doctor didn't really do you much good under (laughs) under socialism you had to be interesting that's right you had to be interesting yeah you know and so i think because we i'm assuming you and i grew up in a capitalist economy you know we generally understand i think from a very early age that human value we place a lot of monetary value on people right so that in the united states is you know you meet somebody at a party and kind of the first question you ask them is well what do you do for a living right and what you're asking is okay so how rich are you compared to me where do you stand on the social scale what might i be able to get out of this relationship right it's a very strange way of interacting with people and i think that under socialism and again this is discussed at length in the east german context but even in places like romania as i just said which was probably the worst place to be a woman, many women talk about the quality of relationships being different under capitalism, because for people who were raised in a sort of more non-market economy, they didn't think of human worth or human value in monetary terms. And I think that that's, you know, for a man... Like in the United States, you know, there's this whole idea of, well, if you take a woman out for dinner, then, you know, what is the expectation? Like if you take her to a really fancy restaurant, is that going to lead to sex? Or if it's like if you go Dutch, does that mean that she doesn't have to sleep with you? There's all this sort of calculation around sexual relations. But I think that what's interesting is when people have their own economic independence, even if it's at a relatively low level, it changes the relationships that you have with people. Now, one of the things I also want to say and a critique that I've often heard is, okay, yes, fine. They didn't have the internet. Yes, that's true. We're all a lot more distracted now. They also had far fewer distractions in terms of media or in terms of shopping opportunities. These were very, you know, poor there places with very few, with very high levels of, of consumer shortages. So there are a lot of confounding factors. It's not just about women's rights and economic independence. Because On that they, point as well, yeah. just to raise one other thing, which you do talk about in the book, um, is it's interesting how often things like you know the oppressive nature of the regime the shortages push people into the domestic sphere so people exactly spend more time on their own personal relationships with their spouses rather than you know being having stuff to do outside yeah and i think that that's that's a really important point is that people enjoyed each other's company in the private sphere partially because the private sphere was a way to get out of the public sphere which was heavily surveilled and you know where you have this sort of you know authoritarian regimes con- trying to control what you think and say and do but in the private sphere you have an incredible amount of freedom and this is not only with your spouse this is with your friends this is with your family this is with your colleagues I mean, over and over again, you hear this refrain that human relationships 
were qualitatively different prior to 89. And so the question that I want to ask in the book is just why is that? Is it, you know, do we have to have authoritarian regimes in order to have more satisfying relationships? Or are there ways, I hope at least, that we can push back against the market commodification of our affective resources of our attentions and our affections and our emotions so that we can, you know, instead of spending time with our friends, we share time with our friends. In the United States, we often say you invest in relationships or you invest in friendships. Can we get rid of that language of investment, of trying to think of everything as something that you're expecting a return from and just thinking of of human relationships as something that we just enjoy for their own sake. That's the conversation that I'm hoping that this book will precipitate. It's not in any way a kind of, you know, nostalgic longing for some kind of 20th century state socialism. It's just that 20th century state socialism gives us some data to show that in places where the market has been attenuated in some way, human relationships look slightly different. That should make us think about ways going forward into the 21st century of how we can use some of these socialist principles to make all of our lives, both men and women's lives, more satisfying. Well, to finish off then, just one more question. And I should also say that there's plenty of stuff in the book that we haven't covered about, you know, what we can learn from socialism about the workplace and motherhood and citizenship and stuff, which is all... Or great, but obviously we've been concentrating mainly on um, human relationships. And we can also see an experiment in what happened after socialism ended, because we've now had nearly 20 years of all of those Eastern European countries adapting in various more and less successful ways to capitalism. So what, Christine, happened to women's lives and, you know, and to women's rights in those countries when socialism went? Yeah, and I think that that's really the, that's that's like the perfect natural experiment. If you want to understand the impact that capitalism has on women's lives, looking at Eastern Europe is a really good place because you go from an almost completely non-market economy, you know, with some exceptions, to a completely crazy, wild, open market economy. And what you see is the reduction of women's economic independence, increasing women's dependence on men and male wages. Um, You also, not surprisingly, see a dramatic plummeting of the birth rate, right? So if you look at the countries in Eastern Europe, as of, you know, last year, I believe, 10 of the fastest, the top 10 fastest shrinking countries in the world are in Eastern Europe because of a combination of outmigration, increased mortality after 89, and very, very low birth rates. So women are essentially voting. They're saying, okay, these countries are not really the kinds of places that I'm going to be able to have a child. I'm going to be able to balance my work and my family. And so you have very, very low total fertility rates in many of these places. That being said, there are some positive legacies of socialism. So if you look at, for instance, tech employment in the EU, I believe Bulgaria and Romania have the highest percentage of women working in the tech industry. Engineering, still throughout the Eastern Bloc, there are many more women engineers than there are in the West. Doctors, Lithuania has the highest percentage of doctors anywhere in the world that are women. So it's a mixed bag. But in general, what we see is that the advent of capitalism reduces women's economic independence and therefore sexual relations become increasingly commodified, exactly as sexual economic theory would predict, exactly as these socialist theorists in the 19th century also proposed in their earlier writings. 
So I've been talking to Kristin Godsey. We've been talking about her book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, which is out in the UK from Bodley Head. Kristin, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 